So for a narcissist, you're either for them or against them. It's all black and white. When you go to negotiate with them, you're not dealing with a person who's rational. You're not dealing with a person who's reasonable because, you know, you're sitting there, you're thinking, well, we all want to get to a rational conclusion here. That's not how they think. They will take themselves down to take you down. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening, because this is Travis Makes Friends. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Travis Makes Friends podcast. Today, I am making friends with Rebecca Sung. Rebecca, how are you? I am great, especially since I get to talk to you. Yeah, we're here making it happen in Santa Monica, which I could think of worse places to to <laughs> do a podcast together. That's right. Sun uh, is shining today. So and and you, live, nice and you live around here, right? I do. I live in Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach. That's one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites. I grew up in SoCal, but I'm in Vegas now. But whenever we'd go to the beach... Growing up, it was like I always, I always wanted to be in Manhattan. Yeah, sure. it's beautiful. Now, I know that there's a bunch of things that we're going to end up talking about here today and, and a couple of things that I want to talk to you about specifically. But before we do that, I want to build a little bit of context for anybody that is watching or listening right now who may not know who you are. So let's rewind the clock, Rebecca. Let's go back to, let's say, 10 years old. 10. So take us back, set the scene. Where in the world are you? What's life like for Rebecca at 10? Oh, 10 years old was, that was a rough time for me, Okay, actually. I was in McLean, Virginia. I was a little half Chinese girl who was, I think, feeling kind of voiceless hmm. at that time. I was feeling very different than everybody else. I had had a couple of friends, but I was feeling very different than everyone else, and I was bullied for being Asian. Okay. And, you know, there was nobody else that was half Asian. My middle name is Yu Kong. You know, everybody else had a middle name like Marie yeah. or Anne. Anne. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And even though it, McLean, Virginia is actually a suburb of Washington, D.C., mm. it just was very different. Yeah. So. What did your parents do? My dad's a physician. He's okay. an anesthesiologist. He was in Washington. And my mom had been an operating room nurse, German. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so I'm half Chinese and half German, which means I have no fun genes whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It seems like you have some fun. It's very, you know, organized and, yeah. you know, but it, it was, it was a difficult time. I feel like I didn't come into my own until I was a little older than that. So well, 10 years old, that was a rough time for me. Was there anything that you took solace in? Anything that gave you a sense of self or fortitude at the, at the time, like an activity or school or, you know, 
sports or anything else like that? I had a lot of cousins. My my one cousin said that when my dad and his siblings came over from China, they recreated the clan of the way the Chinese people, you know, were in back in China was that they would all kind of live in a, a you know, the families would get married, but they would they would all stay close to each other and cousins were like siblings, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Well, obvi- obviously we didn't live in the same house, but I was very close to all of my cousins. I still am. Okay. So my cousins are like siblings. Yeah. And they're all half also. Okay. Interestingly enough, all of my dad's brothers married, you know, w- women from the United States, you yep. know, who are white. Mm-hmm. And... I, People you had something in common with. Yeah, so I yeah. think, but you know, I it, interestingly, I would go to Chinese school on Saturday mornings to take Mandarin lessons, and they were all Chinese, so I didn't fit in there either. Mm, yeah. You know? Right. And I think, you know, being with my cousins, I felt normal there. Yeah. I think maybe that gave me solace. Did you take to school? Did you enjoy school or uh, school? only later? Okay, only later. So, so let's I mean, let's move into that part then. So you you know this this time in your life isn't a great time, but then you said you kind of started coming to your own a little bit later than that. So at what point did you start feeling like, you know, I guess more confident or, or secure or more like you were fitting in? I mean, I did. I was in this gifted program as a child, but it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know what that really was. It didn't mean anything to me at that time. I feel I really felt voiceless as a child. I really did. I think it wasn't until high school, maybe, okay, that things started to shift for me. I definitely excelled in high school. I went to a boarding school for high school. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like this all-girls It was an all-girls boarding school. Mm-hmm. Was there a reason for that? I don't know. My mom decided that that was what I was going to do. Any of like your cousins do the same? Was this like a cultural no. thing? Like Mm-mm. your mom was just like, no, nope, this is just you. <laughs> it was just me. My, mom, my brother and I did that. And one of my other cousins did, but I don't know. So your brother went to an all-boys mm-hmm. boarding school and you went to all-girls mm-hmm. boarding school. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? I definitely excelled there, and I also started to get attention for, you know, what I looked like at that time. I, my dad's best friend was a movie producer, and he was friends with Eileen Ford. Mm. The Ford Modeling Agency was a big thing at the time, and you know, he was going to get me, you know, into that. And so I did I did this modeling portfolio mm. and I was planning to become a model and my but my dad once he found out about that, he immediately shut that down. I mean, that was like really? not happening. Oh no. My dad had gone to Columbia I was gonna uh, say undergrad and medical school and that was he, I was going to be a pro- professional. Yeah. That like was the, not happening. Seemingly education was a very large factor in your family, I'm sure. That was not happening. Yeah. 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 My oldest cousin had already, the first of us, had gotten into Princeton. And when that happened, 
set the standard, huh? That was David was David no, was going to yeah. Princeton. No that, pressure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always tell David, I'm like, thanks a yeah. lot. Thank you, David. Yeah. yeah. So no, that was not happening. But that, you know, I think I started to gain confidence in high school. Mm-hmm. Just because I, I excelled academically, but then I don't know. I still never really felt. I, I always felt like an imposter. I always felt like you didn't belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I got married at nineteen. The first oh, wow. time I dropped out of college, got married at nineteen. The first time, and I had three kids by the time I was twenty-two. Oh my gosh! I'm sure your parents were thrilled about that. Thrilled. Yeah. That was my version of rebellion. <laughs> it probably worked. It probably got a yes. rise out of them. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Got divorced. How soon after? They were, my kids were little. Okay. Where did you meet this guy? He was one of the town boys at, when I was in high school, I was a senior in okay, high so school. Okay, so you knew him for a while then. I was a senior in high school. I met him like February, right before I graduated. And I, you know, had started college, but then I dropped out of college. You know, I don't know. I think I just was tired of what, what call you. So you obviously went to college close to home. I had started, I had gotten into colleges in Virginia where, which the colleges in Virginia I had gotten into were very good. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Virginia has really good schools, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to go there. I wanted to just not be having my life be run by my father, mm. which I love. I re- actually was really close to my dad, but I yeah, sure. I, I mean, that brings up a really good point though, as a parent is that you can't force things onto your kids. You just kind of support what they want to do. Right? Yeah. I just, I didn't want my life to be run by him yeah. anymore. Well, it shouldn't be. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, at that's the time, you know, I was is. in boarding school and, Everything was very regimented there. Mm -hmm. And then my father wanted me to go to UVA Mm -hmm. or William & Mary or one of those state schools. Yeah. And I just didn't want that. And so I ended up going to Catholic University of America, which was in like basically right next to his hospital. Okay. And I was just didn't really want to go there either. Yeah. And so you stopped. So I stopped. <laughs> so what happened after that then? I got married because to me it was like the only way out. Mm. Out of- from under your dad's thumb kind of? Mm. Okay. Which is not the best reason to get married was probably. Not. <laughs> no, which yeah. I found yeah. out. Sounds like you found out pretty quickly though. Yeah. Didn't waste too much time on that. What, now, are, your, what are your like biggest takeaways from that time period? Well... You know, I think we all have our own little path, right? I mean, I kind of realized very quickly, wow, this is not the greatest path either. You know, I had these little kids and this was not it either. You know, I needed to do something. So now I'm like in this hole here. Well, now it's more difficult to do something when you have three kids. Three kids and no Three kids under five. Three kids under five, no money. Oh. This marriage is not the greatest. I had to finish college, which I did. And, you know, so. What, what did you get your degree in? It was just an education. You know, I, was, I wanted okay. to. So I ended up teaching, 
you know, elementary school for a little while. But, okay. you know, I just, I was like, this is not my life. You yeah. know, this is not what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. So we moved to Florida and I ended up applying to University of Miami. They had a night program at that point. Mm -hmm. Got divorced. I'm still in my 20s at yeah. this point. Yeah. And... My mom was living in Florida. My parents got divorced. Okay. And I, she was, so she was in Fort Lauderdale. And so we were living there. And I decided to apply to University of Miami, which they had a night program. So I did that. And I did have a good relationship with my ex-husband. You know, he's not a bad guy. He's mm -hmm. a nice guy. He just wasn't for me. We just sure. completely outgrew each other. Well, that's what happens when you get married at 19. Exactly. You know, like, it's so weird because you don't even know who you are no. at 19. So it's difficult to stay with somebody when you're both trying to get to know who each other are, but you're changing everything about yourself Correct. all the time. Exactly. It's, it's really difficult to keep up with that. Completely. And so I went back to law school, got my degree, and met my husband there, actually. Okay. So we've been married for 23 years. Wow. Okay. And we have a 21-year-old daughter together. Awesome. And I, you know, it was a crazy time in my life, actually, you know. But I... Why, why do you say that? Well, because I was going to law school at night. I had three little kids. I mm. was, you know, it was wild. You know, I was still in my 20s and yeah. you know, it was crazy. But I did it and yeah. graduated with honors. I was in law review and I met the people that I ended up working for, which they had the top family law practice in Florida at the time. And that's how I ended up doing family law which, you know, I hadn't really decided that I wanted to do, but that's, you know, it sort of found me. Sure, yeah. The woman who was the superstar happened to be half Chinese. I went to this dinner. So my husband was a year ahead of me in school, at law school. Okay. And he had graduated <clears throat> already, and I was still in law school. And we went to this dinner. My husband was a prosecutor. So we went to this prosecutor's dinner and the judge that he was appearing in front of all the time was married to that family law attorney. Oh, so interesting. So we sat okay. down with them. That family law attorney, was her name was Victoria Ho. And I said, is Ho a Chinese name? And she said, yeah. She turned out to be half Chinese. Turned out she had two boys and a girl from her first marriage. Oh, her really? dad had been an anesthesiologist. Her mom had been a operating room nurse her it was like her life was my life but she was like 15 years older than me wow. and like it was insanity yeah no kidding that many parallels is crazy crazy so she ended up hiring me while I was still in law school okay and that's how I ended up on this path it was completely a god thing <laughs> yeah right so at what point along the journey did you decide to start I guess, focusing on the negotiation angle? A good question, actually. You know, at one point, I decided to start my own practice. And to build a practice as a lawyer, you have to go out and do speaking engagements. And 
nobody wants to hear about divorce, you know, as you're (laughs) speaking. As your platform. As your platform. So I decided I would develop a talk on negotiation. Okay. I was doing high net worth divorce. High net worth divorce is a very specialized area of divorce. You have to know about trust law, business law, tax law, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, very, it's a very complicated area. I'm sure. It can get really intricate really quickly. Yes. When you have to divide up real assets. Very, very complicated assets. Yeah. So, and the negotiation aspect of it is very, very complicated as well. Mm. You know, you're dealing with the most important types of assets for people. You yeah, know, their money, sure. their business, their children. And, In a know. very emotional time right. as well. And I only ever represented billionaires, celebrities, you know, because I, my practice was in Naples, Florida, which was okay. very affluent community. Yeah. And I decided I'm going to develop a talk on negotiation. So... That's how I built my practice. Hmm. I always say that I spoke on negotiation, every rotary from Sarasota to Marco Island and every Hadassah group and every women league, league of women's voters, whatever. That's how I built my practice. Yeah. And, you know, I ended up having the top family law practice and, you know, I best lawyers in America by U.S. News many years in a row now and you know a lot of accolades so by the end I mean I don't practice law anymore but it by the end I never had to step outside of my office to network anymore sure but that's how I built my practice how long did you do that for do you think just like constantly speaking going out to things oh 10 years probably, maybe, you know, grinding it. Yeah, that's what I want to pull that, bring that to the forefront because um, it's something that we've been kind of talking a little bit about on the show lately is there's so many people that want, you know, certain results. And then they always base their decisions off of too small of a sample size before they see any results actually happen. You know what I mean? So they'll, they, they think that maybe, they maybe have that thought where it's like, you know what? Maybe I'll go build my practice by speaking at Rotaries about negotiation. And they do four talks in six months and then they go, well, that didn't work. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, hang on a second. (laughs) You know what I mean? We haven't given this enough of a a sampling to see if this is going to work at all. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't put out a hundred flyers for your, you know, real estate practice. And then when you get no calls, just be like, well, I guess people just don't. It's the economy, you know, people just don't want to buy right now. It's, well, maybe try putting out like 50,000 flyers and see if you get some responses on that, you know, and then oh. then start testing the messaging on there. Maybe start writing some different copy and maybe hey. get a different looking flyer and then test that one out and then do it again and then repeat that process and then do it over and over and over again for years. <laughs> and then you get to a point where you're, where you're saying like, we built the number one family practice, family law practice. And I no longer had to do that because people were coming to me all the time. And I solidified myself as like the authority or the expert on this particular topic and ended up doing pretty well for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to have a 
a marketing plan and it was how many talks am I doing this month? How many articles am I publishing? How many, mm. you know, and I would ha actually have a box for each month on, you know, filling that in, mm. you know, so I, I, and I knew that I would have to fill in that, that box, you know, am, am I, which, where am I speaking? Where yeah. am I pu publishing an article? Where am I going to be? You know, and, and I knew that I have to ha have that filled in. Around what year was this where you, or, or I guess years or range where you started speaking and ended speaking? Like when were you doing a bunch of this? 2007, 8, 9, 10, okay. 11, 12. Which really sets you up pretty perfectly for doing what you do now. Oh, right? yeah. Because like you're basically just developing content the whole time. And then now oh, you yeah. just have different distribution. I mean, at one point for many years, I, I landed a, a column in the Naples Daily News. That was, you know, like I was so thrilled when I was able to land a column and the regular column in the Naples sure. Daily News. Yeah. You yeah. know, well, in a community like that, it's a really big deal. It was a big deal. For Brings me. a lot of authority and credibility. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then and at one point I was I even had a regular spot on their like the, their version of like the today. The Today Show, you know, their their morning show where yeah. I would go regularly and go speak there, and and that was how I ended up being able to finally do things like Extra, you know, the the national television yeah. show. Yeah. And so Extra used to call me when divorces would break, and you know, Brad and Angelina come, you know, speak mm. to that, or when Miley got divorced, I. I spoke on that or Tom and, and Katie got divorced. I spoke on that, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I ended yeah. up doing that for national shows too. Yeah. This is one area not to get too deep in the weeds on the negotiation stuff quite yet, but this is one area that I think a lot of people skip over uh, in negotiations is, and maybe you can just give us a couple of, of thoughts about this is leading up to the negotiation, like putting yourself in a position to be able to succeed right? Which is exactly what you're doing by gaining all of this credibility, this authority. Because by the time you're sitting down with somebody, you already come to the table with more power because of who you are, because of the brand that you built, because of the recognition, because you're on national television, regional, local television, you have an art, you have a column in the local paper, all these other things that they, they, they're stacking up to where when you sit down, it's no longer like zero, zero, you're already coming to the table with a little bit of an edge and an advantage. Mm -hmm. Is there, uh, do, do you work with a lot of people on, I guess, perception tactics it sounds kind of slimy when i say it like that but but oh I think well you know yeah you and you alone define your value i you know i actually we we were just chase and i were kind of just having this conversation before you came in but i will tell you a story and and this is part of what i teach with my sleigh methodology mm -hmm. which sleigh stands for strategy leverage anticipate and you but the you is you and you know your mindset your you know, you have to believe that you can win mm. you know a hundred percent you do a lot of times people say can you find me a good lawyer i just need a good lawyer I, you know whatever even that is giving away your power mm. you know you have to believe you you can win and so i'll tell you an interesting story I had been practicing law for about eight years. Then I had gone to be a financial advisor with Morgan Stanley for two years. Okay. And I had my Series 7, my 66, mm -hmm. and 
I thought it would be like an easier lifestyle mm -hmm. with my daughter. She was younger at the time. It definitely wasn't, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> yes, exactly. So then I had a friend who was leaving town and she's, she was like, oh, I'm going to give you my law practice. She had a dozen clients. Mm. And she said, uh, you know, you can have them if you want to start a law practice. And I thought, okay, well, no one's ever going to be dropping a law practice in my lap ever again. So let me, yeah. you know. I think this is an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'll take it. So I decided to start my law practice th at that time. And at the time, I hired a business coach who was helping me. And I, I, I remember saying to her, oh, my God, the people of Naples, Florida are going to think I am such a flake. You know, she was a lawyer and then she was a financial advisor. And now she's mm. going back to being a lawyer. And, you know, it's, it's a smallish sort of town. And it's also very affluent. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was going to be really judged, mm -hmm. you know, like this girl does not know what she wants, you know, and I really was very concerned about the perception. And my business coach said to me something I never forgot. And she said, people will think what you tell them to think. She said, you can tell them to think that you're a flake or you can tell them to think that you are the only attorney in town that has a financial background. Hmm. So you are actually more qualified than any other family law attorney in town. Perceptive coach. So which story would you like to tell? Yeah. What's interesting is just in that one answer that you just gave, there's at least two really key relationships there's one person that gives you a law practice, trusted you enough, liked you enough, knew you enough as a person to hand over the keys to a law practice. And then another person who was a coach, a mentor, you know, figure in your life who helped you step into becoming the person that was capable of taking this and turning it into what it became. What other relationships were really important or valuable for you at that time? Oh, I'm going to tell you another one that was so valuable to me at the time. My best friend, who's still my best friend, my girlfriend, Carolyn Cedarquist. I remember saying to her, what if I finish up Jill's clients and I never get another one of my own? Oh, man. And what, and what did she say? She said, that is not going to be your problem. <laughs> she said, your problem is going to be that you're going to have too many. Yeah. She said, that is ridiculous. And I'm assuming she was right. She was 100% right. Yeah. Oh, man. How did you guys meet? Carolyn, I met her back. The kids were in kindergarten, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So you met because of your kids. Yes. And they were... They were They're now going to be seniors in college. Yeah. yeah, but she is basically my sister, and she's been my biggest champion and my best friend. I'm, I'm going to cry, like literally. <laughs> I have the best best friend on the planet. That's awesome. And now, she does she still in Florida? She is. Okay. She's a doctor. Okay. So when you moved out here, it was probably a pretty big deal. 
Yes, but it hasn't changed our relationship at all. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. What made you move out here? My husband wanted to move out here, but, you know, it was the best thing for me because it gave me an opportunity to get away from my practice. So, like, reinvent yourself. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is what I've been able to do. Yeah. And, but... Very successfully, I might add. Yeah. However, you know, I merged my practice with those two other guys because my practice had just been eating me alive mm. and I really wanted to do something else. Just in terms of the hours you were putting in or the work wasn't fun anymore or yes, all yes of the and above. Yes and yes, yeah. Yeah, just. I always say I built it and then it ate me. Mm. I am a creator. I love being an entrepreneur. Mm. I don't like the hamster wheel phase of things. Mm. Like know? the operating of the business. It just was there was no fun in it anymore there was no creativity left in it yeah when it it comes down to just like optimizing processes basically it's just no longer fun for you it was just I was just a highly paid bitch for 12 hours a day (laughs) well it's better than being a poorly paid one right yeah I guess (laughs) I was just you know it was just no fun in it anymore at all yeah and I, I wanted to create I wanted to do things and so I had to get away from there because, you know, it was just to the point that I had no time left in my day. Yeah. And it's just such a small town that it was like people would take it personally if I didn't take their case or I didn't take their sister's case. Gotcha. Or I didn't gotcha. take their mom's case or, you know. Didn't feel like you could say no. When you were there. No, and money was no object. Yeah. They didn't want my associates, you know? Yeah, they want you. Right. Yeah, working on it. Right. Right. So I just couldn't, I needed to get away from there. Sure. So I merged my practice with two other guys. Mm-hmm. And even when I moved out here, people were sending their private jets to send to take me back there. <laughs> I seriously i like to talk about golden handcuffs golden handcuffs yeah Yeah. to have me do their trial i had one client send a private jet to have me come back there to do their trial did you do it i did well i mean i probably would have done it too (laughs) i'm not gonna lie that doesn't sound like a terrible case to do and of course yeah i did win the the trial there you go and so but i i thought i gotta get out of this thing so then i ended up doing a a business with somebody who turned out to be a narcissist. Mm. And it was one of the worst, most traumatic situations of my life. That was after you moved here. Moved here, okay. Brought back feelings of being bullied. Sure. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed, if you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. As a kid, it was one of the most horrible Horrible experiences. Yeah, well, I felt like narcissism, like being bullied by a narcissist is worse than like playground bullies because they're almost more insidious with their bullying, if that makes sense, right? Like it's more hidden behind this veneer of I care and no, I'm your friend and stuff like that. It was a covert narcissist. Yeah. Covert narcissist. Yeah, so what what types of narcissism are there? It's covert, grandiose, and malignant are the main kinds that you hear about the most. And, I mean, there's others, but those are the ones you hear about the most. And how would those be defined? Well, any kind of a narcissist is a narcissist. A narcissist is a person who, I mean, there's a there are formal definitions, but I'm going to give you what I call the layperson's definition. It's a person who is starving for attention, desperate for, they don't feel like they have any inner sense of value. Hmm. So they, they feel like they have to get all of their sense of value from external sources, but there's a black hole inside of them. So it can never be filled. Hmm. So it's almost like they're desperate for air, gasping for breath and it can never be filled. So you might want to fill it too, but it can never be filled. So you're left feeling totally and utter de- utterly depleted, yet they're yeah. still starving. Yeah. And is it, it's is scarcity this, to the utmost extreme. Is this innate in people? Is no. it caused it, by something? It's caused by trauma. Okay. And what I found in my research is that, and this is what I found fascinating, fascinating, is that... When we as human beings are in fight or flight, Mm -hmm. our brains emit chemicals, right? Hormones, Mm -hmm. adrenaline, cortisol, epinephrine, right? Yeah. And as children, when this happens on a regular basis, the brain bathes the limbic system in chemicals. Okay. And it can cause arrested development to the limbic system part of the brain. When that happens as children, 
while the prefrontal cortex part of the brain continues to develop, which means the thinking part of the brain, that limbic system part of the brain does not. Mm. So when they become adults and they are presented with stimuli that makes them feel like they need to go back into survival mode, that limbic system part of the brain then becomes activated again, Mm. which is sometimes referred to as narcissistic injury, then they, it's like a switch goes on that they feel like they need to fight again. And it can cause rage. Mm. It can cause them to act out in ways that don't seem rational, that don't seem reasonable. Mm. And what I learned is that sometimes if they're in that rage, they don't even remember the way that they acted. They don't even know what they've done. And so it can, sometimes it's even referred to as narcissistic rage. Mm. And there's, that phenomenon is actually called splitting. There's a term for it because it's like a split. So for a narcissist, you're either for them or against them. There's, it's all black and white, you know? So when you go to negotiate with them, you're not dealing with a person who's rational. You're not dealing with a person who's reasonable. Yeah. Because, you know, you're sitting there, you're thinking... Well, we all want to get to a rational conclusion here. You know, everybody wants to, you know, be, have this be done. Let's not pay a lot in attorney's fees. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out how we can come to an end here. Yeah. Amicable arrangement. Right. But that's not how they think. Yeah. They, it's a zero-sum game. Not only that... It's not even zero because they will take themselves down to take you down. Mm. That's the thing that doesn't even make any sense to people. They will take themselves down to take you down because they enjoy the process of making you squirm. They enjoy the process of manipulating you because that, remember I was telling you about how they need to feed that inner feeling of no value. Mm -hmm. That's called narcissistic supply that need to, that thing that they need to fill, that hole that they need to fill. They fill that with what we call supply, narcissistic supply. What I have figured out, though, is there's really two tiers of that, what I call diamond-level supply and coal-level supply. And diamond-level supply is how they look to the world, big houses, prestigious friends, money, status. status. What I call coal level supply is degrading people, controlling people, making people squirm, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But there's a tearing to that because when push comes to shove, they will protect and defend that diamond level supply at any cost. So when it comes to negotiating... The key is to figuring out how to threaten a source of supply that's more important for them to keep than the supply that they mm-hmm. get from manipulating you or jerking you around. Because when you're negotiating with them, you're, you're over there going, 
what is it that they want? I'll yeah. just give it to them. That's the hard part, right? Is like in a negotiation, you're always trying to figure out what the other party wants from. Right. I'll just give it yeah. to them because then I can be done with this thing. Why aren't they just leaving me alone? Yeah. Well, the problem is they enjoy that part too. Yeah. Because the myth is that they just want to win. That's not all they want. They want you to lose. They Not just you to lose. They want you to squirm. They want, they, it's like that kid with the pin in the earthworm. Yeah, the magnifying glass and the ants. It's enjoying seeing that earthworm like squirm. Yeah. yeah. They like that too. Mm. So they'll, it's the game. What's the difference between a sociopath or psychopath and a narcissist? Yeah, I mean, that overlay of antisocial personality disorder is, that's like, a person who would basically ruin a person's life. You know, that person is a person who would not stop at anything. You know, that's a person who would have no problem stalking you or, Mm. you know, murder you or, you know, accuse you of child molesting if you're not a child molester. Mm you know, go after you, your job, you know, a narcissist might just be a person who has grandiose visions for themselves, who just really wants attention for themselves. Who, a, a, a narcissist is a person who's just in deep pain, Yeah. who is, you know, you just have to picture it's almost like having a massive toothache and they're in just such pain that they can't, that's why they can't see you or feel anything about you. Yeah, they you. can't focus on anything else. Correct. Yeah, other than trying to stop that. Exactly. So you've been working on writing this book mm-hmm. that's that's coming out soon, which mm-hmm. everybody can actually go pre-order right now. What was the website? Slaythebully.com. Slaythebully.com. You can go pre-order a copy. And get lots of cool bonuses like a master class and... There you go. Workbook and you get access to, you know, behind the scenes, cool stuff, my private launch team. and Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Slaythebully.com. So if you're watching or listening right now, then head over there right now before you forget and pre-order a copy of Rebecca's book. And this whole book basically details how to negotiate with a narcissist. Yes. And this all stemmed from the bad experience that you had working yes. with or partnering with a narcissist. Yes. And you obviously had no idea that this person was a narcissist when you got into business with them or no. probably would not have done that, <laughs> I'm assuming. Exactly. Um, so tell us tell us that story. Yeah, I mean, without I try not to do too much in detail just because, you know, I don't want the backlash myself, but sure. you know, I mean, what happens with narcissists and especially covert narcissists is you know, they're very charming at the beginning. I was say, what would be a covert narcissist? That would, that's just somebody that you don't know is a narcissist or can't tell they're a well, narcissist? Well, I think covert narcissists are better at hiding it. You mm. know, grandiose narcissists tend to be the one that everybody more thinks of as a narcissist. Okay. They are the ones that come in. They fill the room. They yeah. demand the best tables at the restaurant. They hold court when they talk. There's more they, obviously You know, they're the ones that... I thought of as a narcissist, you know, the more misogynistic. If they're a man, they're, you know, just kind of 
blowhard sort of, you know, sure. they're the ones that I thought of as a narcissist, right? But the coverts are the ones that, you know, they tend to be your humanitarians, your mm. everybody thinks they're so kind and wonderful. Totally. And they 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 couch their be like a like a pastor. Pastor. Uh, you see them as pastors a lot in churches. For example, they'll, they'll couch their gossip in terms of care. You know, I'm really so mm, concerned. Just worried for... I'm so worried yeah. about Susie's drinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, oh, well, why don't you talk to Susie about I'm it? I'm so <laughs> concerned for her. Yeah. You know, she's just drinking a lot more lately. Yeah. Oh man, That's... So, you know that sort of thing, or inadvertently leaving somebody off an email chain, mm. and then a person that person doesn't end up at the meeting. Oh, I thought thought I'd put you on that. Mm, interesting. I don't know how that happened? Well, if they're so good at hiding it, how do you start to tell then? Things like that really start happening. Well, but then if somebody d- did that, they would just deny it. Right, if I was just like, they oh, have, you left me off the email chain because you didn't want me here. Plausible de- deniability. I yeah. call it the clean hands. You know, they just—they're always very good at like the clean hands. Yeah, you know that, that things don't get back to them, mm-hmm. and and with the smile on their face. You know, I oh I I did that. I I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah, let me yeah. add you right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're very good at just making you feel like. Yeah. All the time. And and you just really don't know what's going on. And you just kind of feel sick to your stomach constantly mm. when you're around them. And you just, you always walk away just confused and not know what's going on. And yeah. it's just, to me, covert narcissists are the worst. It's the worst bunch. Yeah. It feels, it feels safer to be around a narcissist that everybody just knows is a narcissist. Yeah. Like you're saying, the grandiose ones that right. demand attention and they think about themselves in this way and they're always doing, they are very verbose and loud and everybody look at me. It's just almost like a, I can, I can at least respect the straightforwardness. You right. Know, right, because with the covert, when you go to tell people about them, yeah, people will go, seem that yeah really bad. really that guy yeah i don't think so well they they seem so nice it's such a good experience with them. well and yeah. you go to tell people what they did and you and they go well that must have been inadvertent yeah yeah you know i mean yeah it can be really damaging right and make you feel like you're going crazy a little bit and they make you feel like you're going crazy <laughs> like, wait am i the only one that sees what's happening here right yeah am i am i literally losing my mind right you know they'll ask you you know if if they can pick something up for you at the store and then they get back and they didn't get it and, mm. you know, and then that happens on a regular basis and then you go to tell people. And it's just so, it's death by a thousand cuts Yeah, yeah, yeah. with them. Right. You know. If somebody's listening right now and they're kind of thinking, I think I, I think I kind of have some of these tendencies, right? Like how, how do you start working through that if you are a narcissist and you feel like you don't want to be that way, but you feel like you don't really have much control over it and you find yourself excusing, you know, things that you're doing when you objectively would look at them and go, if somebody did that to me, I wouldn't allow it, but I do it to other people. 
and I don't like that about myself and I want to mm. change that about me. Like how, I guess the, if narcissism is caused by some sort of other, you know, third party thing or a tra traumatic event that happened, mm -hmm. what can you do to start trying to overcome that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it's definitely a self-worth issue. Yeah. I mean, so for self-worth issues, what can you do? You know, you, you need to change your neuronal patterns. You need to change who and, and having more confidence in yourself, having more feelings of value about yourself and starting to realize who you are mm. and understanding that you have power and that you, you don't, you can be more authentically yourself mm. and starting to not hide behind the shame, Yeah, you know? I mean, the, the thing about narcissists is they feel like they have to manipulate things all the time. They feel like they have to lie. Yeah. And and they lie about things that aren't even... They're just trivial. Yeah, yeah. They don't need to lie about. Sure. You know, so start being authentically who you are. Yeah. Start showing up as a real person. Do, do you see it being possible for a lot of that to happen? Do you, if you're kind of giving advice or you're, you know writing a chapter in this book and somebody's asking you that they're like, Oh yeah, you know, this person in my life, you know, they're really close to me and I've had them in my life for a long time. And I'm just now realizing that they are narcissistic completely and they drain energy from me and all of the people around them. You know what I mean? What would your advice be to somebody who's realizing that? Is it something that, that they can help mm -hmm. move forward or move past? Or is it more like a narcissist, a narcissist, and they're always going to be like that don't try to change them. It's not going to work. Well, I mean, I, I always have the four Fs, right? Forget about calling them a narcissist. Forget about trying to get them to see your side. Forget about getting them to acknowledge anything that you've ever done. Mm. And forget about getting them to get, give you closure because they're not going to do any of those things. Mm. You know, and it, any of that is just going to cause you more pain and it's wasted effort and energy. So I always say step one, don't run. Step two, make a U-turn. Step three, break free. And, you know, it's all part, it's all within the SLAY methodology, which is strategy, leverage, anticipate, and you. And, but I just, I came up with this step one, don't run. Step two, make a U-turn. Step three, break free. Because it was more like baby steps with, kind of course correcting and making a full on U-turn. And it's easier for people who feel just completely paralyzed yeah. and powerless. And I know what it's like. And I always tell people this because, you know, I was just four years ago dealing with this. And mm. I can tell you that I was in Hawaii in, in Maui, standing at the top of, you know, Mount Haleakala with my daughter my youngest daughter and my husband in July of 2019, which is just four years ago now. And we were on vacation and my daughter, we got up at sunrise, which is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there and done that, but it's... I've not. No. I mean, I've been to Hawaii, but I've not climbed that mountain. Okay. So beautiful. If you go up there at sunrise, it's like heaven on earth and gorgeous. I'm mm -hmm. with people that I love the most on the planet. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, who was 17 at the time, is, oh, mom, it's heaven on earth. It's so beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And all of a sudden, what am I thinking of? Is this narcissist popping into my mind? Mm. And I had this aha moment at that moment 
I thought, no. Yeah. No. No. You do not get to be here. Yeah, you can't invade my <laughs> no. my moments with my people. Yeah. This is not happening. And at that moment, I had an aha moment. Yeah. I thought, every moment I give this person, I'm in victim mode. I said, I'm not allowing this anymore. So the person that walked up that mountain was not the same person that walked down that mountain, and I've never been the same. I said, I am not giving any more. So I said, I'm going to be in creation mode. And I walked down that mountain, and I told her I'm out. And I decided to finish my negotiation book, which was Negotiate Like You Matter. Mm -hmm. And I put it out for endorsements. One of the people I wrote an endor- asked for an endorsement for was Robert Shapiro, who I did not know. He wrote me back within within an hour saying, call me. I was like, oh, okay. Sweet. <laughs> I called him. He offers to write the foreword. Wow, awesome. Which he did. And, you know, magic started to happen. Somebody then told me that she had been a covert passive-aggressive narcissist, which I never heard that word ever or that term ever. And I started doing all this research on it. I had already been the keynote speaker for the American Bar Association on negotiation now, mind you. So I already knew a lot about negotiation. Mm-hmm. And so and I was still flying back and forth to Florida for my practice part-time at that point. Okay. And so I started applying what I was learning about narcissism to my cases. And mm. it was like I had discovered penicillin. Mm. Now at that point Especially in those high net worth cases. In those high net worth a cases. A fair amount of narcissism. Exactly. Exactly. But I always joke I, I moved to LA because there's no narcissist here. Yeah, right. <laughs> Finally free right, of the narcissist. Right, exactly. Yeah, here in Los Angeles. <laughs> right. So so I then was also learning the YouTube, how to do YouTube. I was you know, researching how to learn the algorithms and I was also teaching myself how to do funnels, landing pages. I was you know, learning everything from Russell Brunson. I was reading all of his books Mm -hmm. and how to do courses on ClickFunnels and things like that. So I was doing all of this in the fall of 2019. So it was like this whole confluence of events my whole life. Mm -hmm. I was still on call for Extra. And so I was running over to their studios in Burbank at Mm -hmm. the time, right? I feel like my whole life was like, being set up for exactly what I'm doing now, yeah. right? And then did one video. I had 300 subscribers on YouTube at this point. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had done just some videos on how to negotiate in general because I thought I was going to do negotiation in general mm-hmm. on YouTube. I was doing videos on how to get a job, how to clothing color, sure, things sure. like that. Getting a raise or getting a raise. I was getting like 30 views, and they were like my mom and her church friends, (laughs) just like we all start on YouTube. Yeah, my mom's like, I watched all your videos, 
Hey, thank you, Mom. <laughs> Thanks like, for supporting. I got all my church friends to watch. I'm like, thank you so much. <laughs> that was my 31st view. Yeah, exactly. It's my ideal audience for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly who I need. <laughs> so We're going to need a bigger church, though. <laughs> <laughs> and my father watched too. Okay, great. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So then in January of 2020... I did one video on how to negotiate with a narcissist, and I got 750 views. Okay. And I'm like, okay. Noticeable jump. Something's going on over here. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a course on this. And I thought I'm going to do eight more videos, and I'm going to do a course. So I decided to have it go live on March 11th of 2020. Okay. I had no idea what's going on in the world at this point. I just picked the date. Yep. And I decided to use the acronym SLAY. I grabbed the intellectual property on it. I own the word SLAY, by the way. Nice. And That's a good word down. Yeah. And I just, you know, decided to go live with it on that day. And I had went live with the webinar Three must have secrets to communicating with a narcissist. Live webinar. I used, you know, Russell Brunson's whole perfect per- webinar. Perfect webinar. Yeah. You know, the whole thing. And that was, you know, I was live. I did it. And within 10 months, I had a hundred something thousand subscribers on YouTube. But by January of 2021, I had over 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. And I had made, you know, 1.1 million in course sales. sales Just from from free YouTube traffic. From YouTube traffic organically on that course. Obviously hit a vein then. Right. Yeah. And it's a $500 course. I was going to ask the price point. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. So 2,000 plus people right. jumped into the course jumped just from the course. Yeah. So you so you did YouTube video with just like I had a lead some magnet. value. I have a lead magnet, which is my crush my negotiation prep worksheet. Okay. Which is a fifteen page ebook. It's a very substantial. Okay. Yeah. I, so so I, then you would drive them to that. Mm-hmm. And then on your email list you would say, I have a master class coming up. Sign up. Yeah, I have a five email sequence. Okay. And then I have now it's all evergreen, so I've sold your web, your webinars evergreen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have two hundred thousand on my email list now. Wow! And I have. Is this still all organic? You still haven't? I yeah. Ventured into I, the I paid tried, ads world. I have tried paid ads. I, I'm still. I feel like I'm limping along with that. I mean, hey, if your organic's <laughs> working that well. So I'll keep working on the organic stuff. I mean, I it, I have a guy who's a media buyer, but it's a challenge, honestly, I find. But I did launch my Master High Conflict Negotiation Certification Program okay. just a month ago. My very first webinar, I only put it out to my list. I had 1,100 people sign up for it, and I had 120 calls booked it's a five thousand dollar course, and so I've done three so far. I have, I now have ten salespeople, and I have okay. uh, C, my COO was TD Jakes, the COO for four years. Great. And 
I now have a head of sales and, you know, I have a full on business doing this now. So yeah. it's, yeah. I've sold over 10,000 of my courses and Good for you. It's I amazing. have 40 million views on YouTube now. Isn't it pretty awesome how many good things can come from something that was so bad at the time? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You never thought, you know what I mean? Like when you realized it, it was probably like a, I've been wasting so much time and what a horrible experience and this is terrible. I can't believe this happened. And then that propelled you into this entire new journey and leg of your career where you get to sign your own paychecks, do what you want when you want and create, which is the thing that you like doing anyway. Right. I love what I do now. I mean, I love it. And I'm telling you the, the people, I just had my first live for my certification course because the certification is a mixture of online and some lives. Okay. And so I just got to meet the people who are in my live, the, the first wave of the people who are going to be certified in my training. And, oh, my gosh, it's all people who've been very much impacted by my program, you know. Yeah. And their stories, oh, my God. I mean, I literally just get the chills, like, of impact that my program had on them. Mm -hmm. And now they want to turn around and become coaches. Mm. It's almost, it's so humbling. Yeah, yeah. It's so much of a God thing. I mean, I really, not to sound cheesy or corny or anything, but I truly believe that I'm just the vessel for. Well, you're making an impact. That's for sure. Making a big impact. So one more time, the URL for your book, Slay the Slay the Bully. Slay the bully dot com. Dot com. Slay the bully. Yes. Com. And you know, I start off my book talking about my own story of being bullied as a child mm. on the playground and being voiceless. Yeah. And how and I end the book by thanking the bullies because I also now have a five oh one C three. Okay. With Lindsay Snyder who owns In and Out. Oh really? Yeah. So I am we're going to be providing legal aid for people who can't afford oh, legal That's fees. awesome. And, you know, I feel like this is my purpose on this planet. Yeah. Is to help people who can't afford access to justice and for people who, yeah. you know, are voiceless. Sure. Yeah, for people who wouldn't have been able to afford to pay you before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's really cool that you've been able to figure out a way to help all of those people. And one of the awesome things about creating content, having the podcast, having YouTube, and everything else that you, the, everything else that you're doing, and now coming out with the book. So this is, this has been awesome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on. Slaythebully.com. Go pick up a copy of Rebecca's book. Before you forget, go follow her on all the socials on YouTube. Follow her podcast. Check out her show. I know that you're going to get some awesome things from her. And I mean. She's brilliant in negotiation, all this other stuff, but she's also crushed it in marketing and sales and built multiple businesses successfully. So I highly recommend going and checking out some of her stuff. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Too. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. 
And my biggest ask of you, since I'm sharing my friends with you, is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet. And leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.